0: And leaders listen well and they ask great questions. So to your point, don't talk down, ask intelligent questions to where they come to the conclusion themselves and it's their idea, not yours. You're listening to KBCast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Jim
1: Bates, welcome to the show. I'm really, really excited to have you here today. I actually got up super early this morning. I mean, it's not that early now that I'm talking to you, but I was really excited about the interview. I really like your energy. I like your passion. I like your experience as well. So, you know, and you know, you, you genuinely are quite a um, endearing person to speak to. So I'm very excited to have you here today. So I'm keen to perhaps sort of explore first and foremost a little bit more about your background. You've got quite an extensive background. Uh, You've obviously worked in the government side of it and you've worked on both sides in terms of public and private. So I'm keen to kick into that. And then once we finish that, I'm really excited to sort of do a deep dive into other stuff. So please, Jim, welcome to the show and uh, tell everyone what's been going on.
0: Sure, Krista. thanks. And first, let me... uh give you a shout out and a thank you for having me here and for what you're doing for the cybersecurity space. I was just in a client meeting the just a, the, about an hour ago for a utility company here in Alaska where I live. And I was saying, hey, I got to get on this podcast with Chris Sabreen. Chris Sabreen, I know, I watch your stuff all the time. So you're a, a, like a household name up here in Alaska too. So thank you for what you bring to this space. Yeah.
1: Oh, wow. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. Thank you for cutting... You know, just through all the muck and mire around this topic and bringing in so many interesting guests and just, you know, what you do for this space, I think it's so important. And yeah, so, you know, just to introduce myself, I am Jim Bates, you said that, and I'm from Alaska, born and raised, but I've done a lot of work internationally. And, you know, it's interesting growing up in Alaska, maybe some similarities to Australia where you're from, but Alaska is this huge territory with a small population, but a lot of industry. And so, growing up here, I went through you know starting in retail and um, got into the airlines, and literally in the 1990s is when I got into IT at the airlines. I was I took over the stress project because they had fired the the prior IT project manager that was running this big, huge, multi-million dollar install, and we were on old systems. Like you know, we had a tandem and a Wang and token ring networks and 386 computers were just coming out with 16 megs and everyone was like, woohoo. And you know, so that was kind of where I first got my introduction in IT and I saw that technology was gonna be the future and I wanted to learn more about it. So I actually signed up and worked for the largest IBM business partner in Alaska. And we were in every industry up here. So we did school districts, city government, state government, federal agencies, 200 commercial accounts than every kind of, you know, business type. So it was really a good. IT gets you into every kind of business. And it's really kind of neat because you get a lot of business experience because, you know, it's their information. It's their business intellectual property. It's that, you know, it's really the value that companies have now is their information and data. So that took me on a path. And one of the clients that I was doing work for, it's, Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium, which is like they have a full on hospital campus. They do telemedicine to remote Alaska where there's no roads and there's no hospitals. So having to do, you know, commissioned um, these practitioners that live in the villages have to tie into these doctors and then do everything over the wire, you know, because they don't have ability sometimes to get medical care fast. So they have to have someone who can help them stabilize a patient or whatever. So technology, we've been doing a lot of that kind of stuff, um, having to deal with our remoteness and bandwidth issues, and also challenge. You know, cybersecurity comes into this whole topic because security was different back then. I mean, we had proprietary systems. Um, you know, PCs were just starting to come into the business and become a business computer, which they were never designed for. Um, so most of the vulnerabilities that were happening back then that were being exploited were things on your your personal computer. Um, The networks were different, Um, you know, TCPIP and that whole stack wasn't really quite out yet and it was starting to trend, but we did 10 base T and then things like, you know, peer-to-peer networking and finally got into those technology stacks in my career. But in that hospital, I did every kind of project you can imagine for a hospital campus and for a telehealth network and cybersecurity was obviously always um, a part of it. And um, you know, while I was I worked there seven years, and we and I created the project management office and did all kinds of things to help mature the organization, along with um, focusing on you know implementing a lot of IT systems, lab systems, you know, pro, professional uh, fee systems we call them pro fee systems and facility fee systems, and you know, you name it, we are doing it, and then integrating it all together um, through our networks and. Security was still um, not as big of an issue as it is today because things have changed and our de- definitely our you know our, our, our threat surface has become a lot bigger now than it was then. Um, our, you know So the attack surface, it's just a whole different d- day today than it was then. And so then I got recruited by Michael Dell's company that creates the Dell computers to go to a project in Round Rock, Texas, where they're headquartered. And I got exposed to a whole new bigger world that made me kind of compare Alaska-sized industry to the bigger you know, industries that were happening. And it was a great experience for me. It was a very successful project. And while I was there, I did other projects for, um, I did one for LabCorp North Carolina with Lydia Fonseca, who's the CIO of um, Pfizer now, and really super neat lady, one of the best leaders I've ever worked with. And we were looking at assessing their entire stack, including security and disaster recovery, business continuity, And and back in that day, that was probably about 2008, I want to say, they were still using like vaulting with Iron Mountain and doing like, you know, disaster recovery with hot site through sun systems and all that. Once again, security was another big issue in every part of my job. And then I also did a little uh, ISO 27001 project for Rackspace, which was a big hosting. They bought a mall in San Antonio, Texas. And we're converting it to a bunch of rack space and needed to make sure that things were secure. And so I went down that path. I got my CISSP, my you know, security professional certification, my CISA, which is through ISACA, which is you know an auditor certification. And so my career was also, you know, being supplemented with education and getting credentials. And I came back to the state of Alaska in 2010 and started my business. But then I got recruited to go to the state of Alaska and be the the director of enterprise technology, which is the CIO role. And I served under two governors and did that running uh, technology for the state of Alaska, including um, the cybersecurity office, which reported up to me. And so we were involved with everything from policies down to controls and everything in between and selecting and hiring uh, the new CISO that we did when I was there working with the federal government and um, writing white papers to um, the White House around cybersecurity in Arctic, you know, the Arctic, uh, the ice was melting up here because of global warming. And there was a big study during the Obama administration did that. And then, um, yeah, so I served for three years as that. And then went back to kind of doing my business. And I'm a consultant today, helping organizations and a lot from the more strategic perspective. I'm not as much of the practitioner as I once was because things change so fast, but that's a little background on me. Hopefully that's helpful and gives everyone kind of an idea of where I came from and where I'm at today.
1: No, that's awesome. I love that. I like how you were talking about like old school computers like the do you ever do you ever, quickly on that, you talk about personal computers. Do you think back then people were under depression? Like, there's no way people would have personal computers? Like, was that, because like, I think about what's happening now at the whole Web3 thing, and everyone's like, oh, no, that's not going to be a thing. Do you think it's the same sort of conversation that's happening just, you know, 20, 30 years later?
0: That's a good question. So, what we used to joke was, you know, get those dumb PCs out of here because they're just a big pain and they weren't designed to be here. We have industrial strength computing systems that were designed and scalable for, you know, high interactive hits with lots of people hitting them. And we had dumb terminals where the people couldn't break things very easy. Um, you know, they were hooked up. Some of them were even still daisy chain. And then all of a sudden the PC started getting brought in and the power of the desktop, we couldn't argue with that anymore. I was like, dude, these like spreadsheets and word processing and all the things that you can do from a business perspective But how do we start to fix the vulnerabilities associated with a personal computer? And everyone now going in and doing reg edit and playing around with, you know, the registry on your computer and breaking it, having us try to come fix it for them. We're just like, how do we lock this down? And so we've come from that to now where we've built our own mainframes, basically. We've industrial strength. You know, the PC then became the pancake servers, you know, that you put into a rack that were based on Intel, you know, technology and Windows operating systems and, etc etc and so i think now we've started you know it went to the sands and everything till now i feel like we've kind of engineered and built our own big mainframe computers um and so it's kind of interesting that's my perspective anyway but i really feel like i couldn't live without my desktop stuff today but back then we were fighting those people all the time like the pc guys were the bad guys you know
1: yeah no it's just i'm just hearing this come not that i was like that much like i was obviously quite young when the pc came around but it's just the same sort of conversation that has obviously been taking place now. So I'm just curious to always hear what people's sentiments are on that. So I want to sort of dive into how can companies align their cybersecurity strategy with their business? Now, I think a lot of people say that they do, but I don't know in actuality if that is the reality of what they're doing. So I'm curious to know from your perspective with your experience, How do you sort of start that conversation internally?
0: Chris, that's a great question. And you know as well as I do with your experience that there's really no two companies exactly alike. And when I go into an organization, I first of all try to determine the culture um, because culture eats strategy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Literally, it does. And if you have a bad culture, you're going to have a harder time doing any kind of strategy or alignment or having that conversation. Um, because really, to me, a good culture starts with strong communication and great relationships of trust within an organization. And some companies are very small where you have just one person trying to do all of it. And so there's a lot less communication channels and a lot less you know, what that can go wrong. But the great big complex companies that have subsidiaries and you're trying to do cybersecurity and you're trying to create a strategy, you have a lot more challenge. So there's not like a cookie cutter answer to your question but it all starts with just common sense, good communication and understanding, in my mind, if you're the C-suite, if you're the executive and you're not into the, the IT space per se, everyone has to be today, then learn. You know, uh, you can't go to a CEO and, you know, in the old days and say, oh, well, you know, if you were, in, if say you were in charge of the railroad and you had no idea that you needed to keep things secure from a physical perspective, there's no excuse for that as a CEO. Well, now your your assets are your information and your data, right? And so if that's the important part of your organization, you're protecting something. It could be intellectual property. It could be someone's personal identifiable information. It could be, you know, protected information from some regulatory or you know, some compliance perspective, or just things that you're not, that are they're not public that are private. And if you're a CEO or a CFO or a COO start to learn, this is the world you live in. You can't make an excuse anymore to say, well, that's just uh, cybersecurity, IT stuff. I don't, you know. So if you're that level and I'm talking to you, I'm not trying to, you know, call you out. I'm trying to call you up. It's time for you to start really getting involved. And then if, number two, if you're a CISO or a CIO or a practitioner in this audience, then learn to understand what's important to the business itself. Like, you know, what business are we in? You know, well, we're a law firm or we're a bank or we're a hospital or we're whatever. Every one of those have unique criteria and business requirements. And it's really important you understand it. So I always say, put on your project management hat and just start the whole thing like you're going to go out and get requirements. You know, before you can start to plan a strategy or do anything, you need to go and engage stakeholders, listen, understand. um, If you're a big company and you have a compliance officer, you have a risk risk manager, a risk officer, if you have a privacy officer, get with those people, engage with them, understand the big picture. And that's how you start with a bigger, you know, holistic strategy of all the things you need to do. And then to start, you know, we'll probably get into that later. Chris, I know you kind of, kind of have a way of, you know, facilitating this conversation, but that's how you're going to, if you want to get to execute, which is where most people want to get, how do I do, you know, my job every day and how is it important and why is there all this problem? And why doesn't the you know the executives understand? A lot of times it's because we haven't communicated well. We haven't done our due diligence, and it's for everybody. Security is everybody's job today. Cybersecurity is everyone's job. You can't say, "Well, it's those guys' job." No, everyone has a responsibility. You you have a, a duty to step up and to, you know to be part of the solution, not the problem. So I mean, that's how I would start the conversation. Um, there's a lot more that could be said about it, but. Communication and alignment starts with understanding um, everybody's role and what the organization exists for. What's the mission and vision of the organization? What are we trying to accomplish? And then, you know, so that will tell you what kind of data you have, right? If you're a hospital, okay, well, in our country here, we're regulated by HIPAA, which is an acronym for the Health Information You Know Protection Accountability Act, and Portability and Accountability. So it's it's all about a certain kind of data that is regulated. So now I have to comply with that, right? And so that helps me understand when I'm doing my security baselines and what I need to make sure that I'm doing for a cybersecurity perspective, you know, what controls do I have to put in place and what amount of risk are we willing to take as an organization? You can have that conversation in a lot more meaningful way. So that's where I would just start to say where we would start the conversation. I mean, um, if there's something more specific you're looking for, Krista, please just um, let me know.
1: Yeah, you're so true, like just learn. Do you think that People, I mean, I can say in Australia, from my experience of talking to people outside at that senior level, like, oh, I don't know anything about computers, can't operate my phone, can't do this. And I was like, how are you then in this position and you're saying that you can't operate a phone? Like, I get it all the time. And so I'm curious to know... Do you think that these guys perhaps are just turning a blind eye like oh it is that size or CIO's problem they don't want to like learn and then if so don't you think it's then counterintuitive to the overall problem
0: Yeah I think it's so I get it I you know I'm the CEO of a company now and um, I'm in a different role where I have to make sure that you know we're meeting our goals of our business and that you know we're making revenue and our costs are in control and that we're our customers are happy so there's a part of business that distracts you and so it's just like easier to make it somebody else's job but you're right chris i can't see where you can be an executive in today's world and not understand that technology is how it's the. if you think about the old days in, in america you know we built you know, when they started building the railroad tracks, our our entire economy was being moved by the railroad tracks, and then you know we went from there and we started into air you know um, travel and and air cargo and air I mean we we move so much of the economy through transport methods. Well now our, our the new railroad tracks of today it's technology. Uh, this the, you know the internet, the world wide web, we're, we're all connected and we transact. Um, our ec- economic you know, engine is the fabric of everything we do is technology. How can you be a chief of an organization and not see that? I go into so many organizations today, Krissa, where the CIO is down below the CFO or somewhere down there in the stack, and it shows me they don't value technology as a strategic partner to help them innovate the future and transform their organization. And it's just, it's just it's hard from us IT perspective people to go, what? Are you kidding me? You still don't see the value of technology. And I think there's a real key here about trust. And it, it's probably from the past where, you know, IT got this reputation for, hey, we need this big budget to buy this new stuff. And you know, the, the executives didn't understand technology. They were intimidated by, you know, what do you mean about, you know, you're gonna buy a firewall and you're talking about a switch and you're talking about, you know, some endpoint, you know, product or some why do I gotta put you know, this many millions of dollars into a, a, a network, you know, and they just don't see the value. What am I getting back for that? And, but what would happen is technology, if there was an outage, an interruption of service downtime, they would pick up the phone, call IT and start like you, why are we not having our stuff running? You know? So IT's response was okay, because you didn't give us enough budget for a redundant system. We had a single point of failure. Yeah. Or a vulnerability. It got exploited. So then IT would come back with one option to the business. We want the triple gold-plated redundant system that never fails, has zero downtime, which is never really possible. But, you know, so that's what we put in our budget. So then the business was always like, you spend way too much money. I don't see the benefit. I have no way of knowing that I'm really getting risk mitigation for the amount of money I spend or whatever I'm getting back. So I think that distrust happened, and there's some – there's still a lot of the old school people who have carried over that kind of a culture and environment. And so I try to get people to say to IT, I tell them, look, if you're the IT, go to the business and understand the business perspective and let them make the decision ultimately, but you have to give them options. Hey, look, there's option A, B, and C. And it's kind of like buying insurance, you know, full coverage. We're not even going to talk about liability because there's no coverage for us. So we're going to take it off the table, but I'm going to go to the executive and say, Hey, we have three different options. We like option C because it gives us the best coverage and we feel better at night when we go to bed that we're not going to have, you know, some vulnerability exploited and have downtime for us to deal with. But hey, there's option B and there's option A, less spend for each option and more risk. And have that conversation and build trust with those executives to where, you know, if you can build trust where they trust you and they know that you understand what keeps them awake at night, Expenses and revenue and all that, and then you could say, "Well, hey, you don't realize how many door rattles we had of people trying to exploit a vulnerability on our tax surface. And they're like, "What do you mean by that?" At the state of Alaska, and this is back in 2013 to 2016 when I was serving, we had 2.5 billion hits a month on our .gov space. And so, yeah, well, we had public facing. You know, every department of the state of Alaska had. Uh, public facings, you know, web, you know, you know, uh, surface or landing pages. And, but people come in there and try to figure out how to go horizontal and get to the real data, right? And we weren't even allowed to put in a honeypot because they said, well, that's enticement. Well, we're enticing with our real stuff. Why can't we find out how they're coming in and what they're trying to do to exploit our vulnerabilities, you know? And and so when you can get an executive and have that conversation to say, do you realize how many hits a month people are trying to, you know, that, that hit our... Our public-facing, uh, you know, um, attack surface here—it's so to speak. Or finding ways that come in, and you know, if they can find an HVAC system tied to your network that they can exploit, they'll do it. Now with the Internet of Things, everything's hooked up, right? And it, we've just—we've added a lot more business functionality, but a lot more vulnerability. So I think it's to your point. It's a conversation that builds trust and understanding to change that dynamic that we talked about, where why do these executives just push off IT as something they don't want to get involved with? Because they were intimidated in the past. They had a bad relationship. They didn't understand it. There was a lot of money being spent. They couldn't justify it. And I think it caused this kind of dysfunction. But I see a lot of new companies where the CEO knows more about IT sometimes than even some of the IT people, which makes me really happy to see that.
1: No, I think that's good. I think like, look, you have to do like reasonable endeavors to understand conceptually about IT if you are, for example, a CFO, like you're not asking people to like go and recite like TCP, IP. We're just saying like conceptually, this is how it works, like high level stuff, because equally, you're not a CFO, but you have a high level concept and fundamental knowledge about running a P&L, Yeah. So you're not a CFO to the nth degree, but you have conceptually understanding, okay, I can run a PL, and i got to make sure I'm on budget with my project, et cetera. The same principle in my understanding should apply on how, you know, where is that data being stored? Who's access, all that type of stuff. Like what cloud are we using? Some people don't know that answer. And I think in that role, you should. That's a very fundamental thing that you should know. If your whole company is running on that, you should have that answer. Now you don't need to understand like the configuration of everything, but I think that again, it's just there needs to be an equalizer there between the, the cyber and the, and the, the tech as well as the business. Do you, do we just have, that's a fair statement?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's why we started this conversation when you asked me that first question about how do you start the conversation and it's communication. So You just opened up a door to a great conversation about um, how do you get them to understand concepts when they're intimidated? Because if you intimidate an executive who's in charge of your paycheck, um, you're probably not going to get very far. So if you're trying to talk, I mean, we have our acronyms. You know, we're talking about TCP, IP, and we're talking about, you know, VLANs and WANs. And they're like, what the heck are you talking about? And so what I've done is try to find how can I explain this concept in a way they can relate to without sounding like I'm talking down to them. So I remember getting with some executives one time and I said, do you guys understand how the postal service works? And I know I just sent a package to Australia. And so I had to kind of remind myself, but we have zip codes. I said, zip codes are like IP addresses. you have a block of um, zip codes so that you know we have a subnet. It's just an IP address. It just knows it knows where to send that packet of data and how to route it. So we have post offices that sort mail based on zip codes. And there's an actual address within that zip code space. So when I started explaining to them, I said, think of it. I I was in session, so the legislature here in Alaska, and you're trying to explain to them these concepts. And I was trying to show them this big Cisco switch, you know, um, we needed more money to update our infrastructure, you know, and I had a 13 year old gear that was failing and no more spares and I'm having to, up, you know, upgrade a, a network. Um, of equipment is cost a lot of money. And I'm like, every email you send, every bit of data, everything you do is like transacting through this big post office system where you have these big depots and then it goes to smaller depots and finally gets to the address where it's supposed to go. When I when I explained it to them like that, they were like, dude, I get that concept. So you're telling me that all these packets of data are going through this like big network of like pass to routers and switches that are sorting mail and sending it to addresses. I said, that's kind of a juvenile way of saying it, but yes, if you can get that concept, it's exactly what we're doing. So now I have a trusted relationship where they say, hey, this guy can actually communicate with something we can understand besides some technical mumbo jumbo, right? And so I feel like to your point, if we can get good at communicating concepts in a way and then relate it to money, which is what really keeps them awake at night most of the time, um, you know, then I think we we can build the trusted relationship to align strategy to execution and do it way better than we do. So I don't know if that answered your question, but.
1: No, I think it does, because I mean, I, I would say that that would be an approach to get people on board with your strategy, to actually get them to understand in a way that makes sense, right? Because do you think you try to talk down to like executives or I don't think, I mean, maybe it's some people's intention. I'd like to say more often than not, people have the right intention, but it can come across the wrong way. So I'm just curious to know from your perspective, what are your thoughts on that?
0: No. And so it's why I first reached out to you. And if you remember, I sent you a LinkedIn because I've been following you for a long time. I love what you do. I watched you go from this, in my mind, what appeared to be an introverted person who wasn't so comfortable in front of a big crowd to this person who can just cut to the chase, speak directly, communicate well. And the thing I've noticed about great leaders like you, Carissa, you're a leader. You're an influencer. You know, I don't even accept that responsibility, but you don't know how many people follow you, which means you're a leader. And leaders listen well, and they ask great questions. So to your point, don't talk down, ask intelligent questions to where they come to the conclusion themselves, and it's their idea, not yours. So I think if you're going to engage somebody, especially somebody that you report up to that are smart people and they run the company, you know, don't put them in a corner. I I felt like most of the time what I find works the best is to do what you're doing. You ask great questions and you lead a conversation to get results, right? And it takes a little longer. It, you have to be patient. But if I just give you an answer, I just gave you the answer. It's it's what I gave you, and you have to decide whether you want it or not. But if I lead you to an answer or a conclusion that you come to yourself, then that's yours. You know, you you, and that's that's the I think the most effective way. Is this, you know, kind of be an anthropologist, go in there, figure out what's important to the people you have to talk to, um, study them, understand how to build trust with them, and then just ask great questions and, you know, don't talk down. You know, I'm a pretty direct person, you can tell by my, you know, my speech, and I like to just go right at things like you do, but I know my audience and I understand and I try my best. I mean, yeah, I've got my blind spots like everybody, but I think great leadership is important. And it can't be overemphasized. And I look to you as a great leader, Krista, and just the way you do it is how I would tell everyone, hey, watch what Krista does, do that. You know, go in intelligently, listen, ask great questions, and get this narrative to kind of end up where you need it to be.
1: Oh, well, that's very kind of you. I think that uh, I listen very intently. So when I'm on this podcast or any podcast, I'm listening you know, I'm not on my phone or doing stuff in the background. You can sort of tell, right? I mean, I've been interviewed by people before and I'm like, is this person listening to what I'm saying? Uh, Because it comes across quite clinical and quite contrived, like the next question. So I do hear what you're saying um, in terms of listening to people and actually asking relevant questions. But don't you think, okay, so that if you look at, like, if you zoom out in terms of like sociology, that does seem obvious, but we still get it wrong and we've gotten it wrong for years. So, what is it that people don't get that they're missing on how to listen and then how to ask questions that make sense to the person you're asking? For some reason in our space, we still don't get it.
0: Yeah. So, there's a thing that I use that I, it's called the communication code. And It's if whether you're the receiver or the sender, I start to set expectations for the conversation from the beginning. If I'm the one that's the sender and I'm talking to you, um, I'll say, Carissa, what I really need in this is for you to help me to shape this. I want, you know, help me get the best possible outcome. I need you to kind of collaborate with me. Or I might come to you and say, What I really need you, Carissa, I really need your input on is tell me why this won't work, beat this up for me you know, I have an idea or a concept and I just need to have someone to kind of like critique it and see if there's a way you can, you know, bust my idea. And, or I might come to you and say, you know, um, I really just need you to listen to me and confirm that you heard what I said to you and repeat it back. Cause I'm ha- sometimes I have a hard time. I'm a big idea guy. I'm a strat- strategic thinker. Um, and my personality type, my personality style You know, I'm more probably, my decisions are probably based more on people and values than they are on systems and logic. And it's probably why I communicate IT in a way that some of the introverts that are more logic and systems, you know, oriented, um, have a harder time with. But those are the people that really save you, you know. So sometimes I just need to go to them and say, okay, I'm having a hard time really communicating what I'm trying to say. So let me know if you understood what I just said to you. Repeat it back to me and I'll see if you got it. Or sometimes I might just, this is with my adult children, I had a big struggle with this. They just needed me not to solve them because I'm a solver. I want to fix the problem. So whenever someone comes to me in communication, um, if I don't know what they want from me, I just assume that I need to fix it. And my kids would say, dad, I just want you to give me a safe space and listen to me and don't try to solve me right now. I just need to be able to share something with you. And so I think, Communication is a skill and it is philosophical, but I think IT people could learn a lot from getting more of those soft skills because most of the IT people, I'm not going to try and make generalizations, but they're very logic oriented. Um, people and values are kind of more froofy. People's skills maybe aren't their best thing. We used to joke all the time, you know, we keep our IT people locked behind barbed wire and feed them raw meat or Mountain Dew and Twinkies or whatever and don't let them interact with the, you know, the public. But at the end of the day, If we want the business executives to know what we do and understand technology, we've got to get better at the business language and at communication. So that would be my advice to everyone is just to, you know, know what the community is. If I'm going to, you know, I have someone who works with me, you've met Madeline, and I just say, Madeline, let me know what you need from me in this conversation so I don't get it wrong. And I think the more that we can set expectations about what we're trying to, you know, Asking good questions is great, but every communication is different. And we just need to kind of understand what does the sender need or what does the receiver need? And can we set expectations at the beginning so we don't get it wrong and spend a lot of time going in circles, you know? And I think it's more effective and efficient communication and as part of this whole leadership stack, right? Of how to be better leaders. Leaders aren't just, you know, managers who have all the answers. They just they lead smart people. I say, I want to be the dumbest guy in the room now and just surround myself with really smart people and just empower them to go get stuff done, not micromanage them, you know, just get out of their way. And so I think we can take a lot of lessons from that. And I think part of being at the level I have in my career at the C level and everything else, I had to get out of the trenches in my way of thinking. And it's not because, you know, Hey, we all want to play with technology. Just leave me alone. I want to, I want to configure, you know, my firewall. Or I want to go out there and do, you know, whatever, whatever, um, I gotta go out, make sure that my, you know, my sock and my sim are working, and I gotta make sure my, you know, whatever you know, we're doing. But why are we doing that? Why is that important? What's the firewall service? What is it, what's its, you know, it's its its uh its role in the organization and why is it important? And if you can start asking yourself the why question, I think it helps you with your communication. Like when I was at the hospital, I would go to the IT, you know, I went to, to the programmers one time and I say, what do you do? I'm a programmer. I said, "Well, no, not really." Well, yes, I am. I go, "No, we're a hospital that sees patients. This this organization exists for this purpose. You have a job that you know writes code for programs that the doctors and providers are using to do patient care. That's the value chain, right? That's the value stream. If if you're if you can see yourself as part of something bigger of why the organization exists, it helps your communication better." than just saying, don't tell me why we do what we do or just tell me how to do my job and I'll go do it. And that's, I mean, people are like that. I mean, my career, when I was young, I had to support a family. I had to punch a clock, make a paycheck and feed my family. That was most important thing to me. But then I started going, why am I working? What's this company all about again? What's this mission and vision? So you talk about strategic alignment. You have to start with understanding why this organization exists, what its requirements are and why your job is important and what your role is. And then that starts to build the alignment and the communication needed to be very successful.
1: So, would you say it's about having a understanding, a very clear understanding about the contribution that you're providing as an individual? And, but would you say then, so that, so that software engineer that you just referenced before, do you think that perhaps people are clouded by their roles? Like, oh, I'm just a software engineer. Well, no, actually, you're contributing to the overall hospital here, which does X, Y, Z.
0: Absolutely, and I know that you know you kind of mentioned. Um, when we talked before this call about, you know, how do you kind of keep the momentum going and how do you create excitement around what's happening in our world? This constant change in the pandemic and COVID and all the challenges that we're faced with now with our communication, because we're doing a lot more remote workforces. We got, you know, lots of different kinds of things happening. How do you keep people excited? Well, if you know that you're part of If you can go and say, hey, we just helped that patient get better, and my role in this database aligns to that, I can go, oh, you know, I might not feel like I'm just a programmer when I feel like that I really, what I did added value to something so important. And whatever's important to your organization, if you can start to see yourself as part of that, um, I feel like it's really important. I mean, the Gallup Journal, I read a, a study they did here, You know, it was several years back, I can't remember, time flies by, but They did this study and they broke up employees in an organization in three categories, engaged, disengaged, and actively disengaged. And it was literally about 48% of the workforce that were engaged, less than half. And engaged was they came to work believing in the mission and vision and were totally engaged in why that company was there. About 33% of the workforce or something like that was disengaged. They punched the clock. They did work. They were valuable. They got stuff done, but they didn't really care if they worked here or across the street. They just needed a paycheck and they weren't really bought into the company's mission and vision. And then there was 18%, I think something like that, that was what they called actively disengaged, the ones that were undermining everything that you were trying to do. And that's the ones where you had to either bring them in or get them out because they're bad for your organization, right? So I think engagement this whole alignment from strategy to execution part is so important and try to see yourself as part of a value stream you know my job contributes you know it's you know you might have been a security officer that was like standing outside of a building guarding the building and thinking well i don't have a very good job but hey you're contributing to the safety of that organization just like a cybersecurity officer or somebody that's looking now at threat agents that are trying to exploit your data and information and do damage to you or whatever
1: So one thing I'm curious to know about now, Jim, is, you know, we've sort of already touched on it slightly, but I want to sort of get into a little bit more here, is we always talk about what we're going to do or, you know, one thing I like to say, it's very easy to start something, but it's another thing to keep it going. So I'm curious to know from your perspective, at a high level, how would you approach taking a strategy and actually implementing tangible outcomes? Because more often than not, Um, the analogy I like to think of is, you know, Jan one, everyone's like, yeah, I'm going to go to the gym this year. And I think there's like studies by like Jan 17th, like everyone's given up and they're back having beers with their buddies. Like obviously as human beings, we're not really disciplined to continue things. And so I'm curious to know, how would you do that with an organization that already has complexities, moving parts, people are stressed, you know, people are sick. There's all these things going on. You've got to keep it moving. What would be your advice to that?
0: That's a really good point. I think, you know, there's, like I said, no two organizations are exactly the same. And so there's not like a prescriptive approach that I could tell you, but here's what I would say. If you start with the requirements and you understand those, and then you start to, to build out your, 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 your cyber strategy around what's best for the organization's requirements, its mission and vision, and then have that trusted dialogue where you're building trust with the executives about risk and investment. And then you're getting down to, OK, how do I continually give them a scorecard and report up on how that investment's actually doing something? So I would say let's borrow from an Alaska up here. The safety culture is huge. Um, Alaska has the Transatlantic Alaskan pipeline where we have the North Slope, they call it. And we get crude oil that comes out of these, you know, oil wells, and we run them down a pipeline that's over a thousand miles long to Valdez, and they put them on tankers and ship it all over the world. And so, you know, and so safety has become a huge culture. You cannot go to any of these companies now up here that are in the oil patch or a lot of the other industrial companies without every day starting with a safety stand up. There's a safety minute in every meeting I go to, there's placards all over the walls, And there's these little uh, metrics they use about how many days they've gone without an incident. And I started thinking, hey, we're cyber safety. We're, we're We're providing safety to the organization in a different way. Because why is safety culture so big? Because they know that one incident can cost them so much in downtime, revenue, morale, and everything else. If they don't be safe and someone gets killed or injured on the job, it's a big, big deal in the safety culture. Well, can we do that same kind of a culture I mean, the executives from the top of the organizations are bought in to the safety culture. It's on their websites. Everything they do is like safety. We have a safety culture, safety is part of our DNA. Well, can we, how do we as cybersecurity professionals get them to see that cybersecurity is the new safety arena? And it, we have to be safe, we have to protect ourselves from malware and from all these things that are happening you know, ransomware. Uh, we've had a big pandemic of ransomware up here to some big agencies and it's caused huge disruption and it's not safe. And well, can we start to say, let's create the momentum going by how do we report metrics back up? You gave us this budget money, um, you know, so can what are the metrics that are important to your industry based on those requirements we talked about? And can we show them that how many attacks we thwarted? How many of, you know, 2.5 billion hits a month on our gov space? And here's what we've done to protect. And um, I'm grateful to God that in my three years of Seattle, the state of Alaska, we had no doubt time associated with a, a big cyber attack or anything like that. And so I was thankful that we were able to, because we all say in the cyber, it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when someone's going to find some vulnerability and exploit it and you're going to have a trouble, right? And so, but I feel like if we can change, if you want to keep this momentum going and execute this then let's start giving ourselves a scorecard that aligns with our business scorecard and showing them exactly what, you know, what the threats are looking like. How many of these do we have? What have we done to mitigate risk? What have we done and report back up and say, Hey, celebrate with us. We want this many, you know, days without an incident and let them feel like the, the pressure that keeps us awake at night. I feel like if you want to really keep this momentum going and execute, then think about how we're going to change the, the dialogue And something that keeps the momentum going, where everybody's involved and everyone sees that they're a part of it. Hey, you know, 93% of malware comes in through email. Well, everyone uses email. So you've got to be due diligent. You know, you got to tell people, you know, and teach and train and keep the message going and keep it always out there because we're human. Like you said, entropy happens. Um, We start to get all these things that distract us and we go back to creatures of habit. But the safety culture, I've watched it. It has not regressed. In a, I don't know where it's like in Australia or other places of the world, but everywhere I go with the safety culture, I'm like, these guys got it down in spades because this has not regressed. This has not lost momentum. This has not gone back to the same old way it was before the safety culture came out. And so if I was to share a message with the world to say, if you want to change the dialogue and change the dynamic, let's figure out how to re- you know replicate what they did in the safety culture to realize, you know, get everybody from the C-suite down to realize how important this is. And I, I don't know if that answered your question directly, but that's where I would start. Find something like that and model after it. And then, you know, just you know, the regular project management approach to everything is get your requirements, get your plan, you know, monitor and control that, have good change management because as soon as you think you have something figured out, there's some new, you know, there's some new threat agent out there, some new vulnerability that's being exploited. So information sharing, constantly staying on top of it watching the KBI podcast and listening in what's going on, listen to all the smart people, Um, pay attention, you know, and that's really the best thing I can say about how do we get this moving in the right direction and stop the entropy and and where people are just like going back to the same old status quo, you know, we've got to make change happen.
1: I agree on the safety culture side of it. Do you think it's because in terms of cyber you can't see cyber? So for example, if you're in like a, safety culture, like physically, it's pretty obvious if someone's on fire or a building burns down, you can sort of attribute to, oh, well, that was the fire that we had. So, but you can't really attribute necessarily unless your whole machine blows up or your machine, you can't really see it. So do you think that because you can't see it, it's a little bit like that theory out of sight, out of mind?
0: Yes, absolutely. So that's a great, that's great feedback because, you know, when I got my CISSP years ago, I had to keep up my, you know, education units and all that stuff to keep it current. And I would go to schools and talk to school kids from elementary, high school, all the way up. And I said, look, when you were getting raised by your parents, they said, look, avoid that neighborhood. Don't go down that alley. Stay away from over there. You had to be a citizen that was aware of the threat. And it was physical. You could see it. It was tangible. And then I'm telling these kids, you got to be a cyber citizen now. Don't go to that, hang out in that chat group. Don't go over there, you know, don't believe that guy who says he's a 13-year-old girl and wants you to come meet with him, you know. Um, and because you can't see it and because it's virtual, you know, it's like you're exactly on the money and it's it's been a challenge. But I would like tell people, I said, hey, have you ever uh, played a game that you didn't buy? And they're like, yeah. And I go, have you ever gone into a store and walked out with something you didn't pay for? Well, that would be wrong. I said, well, it's just as wrong to steal you know, software that you didn't pay for. And I said, but you don't, you're not being told or trained that from the time you're young because it's some virtual thing that the parents don't see that this kid got this game or music from somewhere and they were stealing, you know, they didn't realize they were doing theft. Well, those are the ones that some of these threat agents are recruiting. You know, the Russian mob and some of these people that we had to deal with. They find these young kids and say, hey, but you can't get in there. Well, it's like a game to them. These gamers like, oh yeah, I can hack into that. And the next thing you know, they get in there and they're like, see, I can do it. And they're like, hey, while you're in there, get us this stuff. We'll pay you for it. And it's because it's out of sight, out of mind, it's not being visual. So that's what I was trying to say is if the safety culture is putting everything everywhere you can see it, even if, like you said, the incident's visible and it's more physical and it's easier to relate to, the placards about safety everywhere you look, it's a reminder. If you Every time you pop your computer up, there should be like a little sign like, hey, cyber safe, you know, you got to, you know, do your cyber hygiene, you know, be cyber aware, you're a cyber citizen, act like it, you know, I think we could start changing the invisible to something that's a little bit easier to relate to, um, because I think that's what exactly you hit the nail on the head That's why we have the struggle to make it like the safety culture is because it's not as easy to see until someone's company is completely in trouble because they've been hacked and down and now their business is, you know, in peril. So, yeah, no, that's a really good point.
1: So how extreme do you think we have to get? Like, what's going to happen now? It's like, oh, you got ransomware. And next minute, your whole machine blows up, which is like going to signal well. Clearly, that wasn't ideal. Like, how how are we going to get people to notice? Like, it's obvious to like people like you and I, but it's not obvious for someone else. Like, oh well, I don't care. I don't have to see it. Whereas if you know, like, the building's on fire, you you're you're physically in danger. But like, from a cyber perspective, like the guy's like, oh, who cares? I've been here three weeks. I don't care. Like. That responsibility, like people can say, oh, it's everyone's responsibility. It most definitely is. But the the challenge is some, you know, junior level person's not going to care at the end of the day.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't, I mean, uh, you're, you're getting to a topic now about, the, you know, the, the human, you know, dilemma, right? Where, you know, out of sight, out of mind and just trying to, you know, get by and, and get stuff done and not really uh, see the threat. So you don't really feel like it's real. Um, until it happens. And then it's just like too late. And, you know, I don't know that I have all the answers to that, but I think, you know, it's, it's something I remember when I was going through my disaster recovery, business continuity training, um, they made us literally watch these videos of like this building catching on fire and, you know, the whole disaster and, you know, the people weren't prepared for that, how to recover and businesses went out and, you know, same thing happened when we had, you know, the twin towers in New York and, you know, both of them went down. Well, some some of those companies, their entire backup was in the other tower. We lost both towers, there wasn't enough separation, you know, co-location was not, you know, ideal at all. And so those companies lost everything. They lost their accounts payable, their accounts receivable, all their intellectual property, their data, everything. They went out of business, a lot of them. And, you know, it, it, sometimes it's like, how do we wake people up to, this, to the reality of what could happen and I don't think there's, you know, how do you start showing people videos of what ransomware can do? But what happened up here in Alaska, we had a big ransomware. It was in the, you know, it was public because it was an actual, um, you know, it was a, it was a borough. We don't have counties up here. We have what they call boroughs. But there was an actual borough that got ransomware and it took every single, they had to completely take their entire from phones, networks, servers, everything because their backups got corrupt. Everything was corrupted. So they had to start from the ground up, and it was we the whole community came together. And since then, you know, the gentleman who was in charge of that has publicly spoke everywhere, um, and have brought an awareness to hey, this is real. This this was painful, and you know. And so I think the only thing I can say to you is we have to try and figure out a way to make it more visual, make it more real to people, make them understand that they're part of a bigger picture in the threat and say hey you know and now look at supply chain right um the whole thing now our nist over here in america came out with this whole new supply chain risk management um kind of set everything that comes up now has a new you know we got the privacy framework we got the cybersecurity framework we got the you know risk you know we got all these things and now we have supply chain because look what's happened to the world because of covid with the supply chain and the vulnerabilities and security you could say hey i'm secure but someone in my supply chain, if there's a vulnerability, it could disrupt the entire supply chain. One, one person in the B2B community that has doesn't have the same ethics that you do around cybersecurity could cause your ultimate customer to be affected, the, the final B2C in that supply chain, right? And you know, so how do we start to become more accountable as a, as a collective? You know, think about this. I know we're getting close on time here, Krista, but in the old days, what was the asset that people stole? You know? In the old horse and buggy days over here in the U.S., it was, you know, they would rob a stagecoach and get gold or go to a bank and rob it. Well, we made that really super hard for them to do. The risk was not worth the reward. You don't hear about people, you know, very rarely do you hear about people robbing stagecoaches and banks like they used to. It's now always a way to do it cyber because our money is not really being packed around as gold anymore. It's our information. Now, you know, we've got, you know, things we're trying to put in place like blockchain and the way that crypto is happening and everything else. But, you know, if we can figure out a way to make it not worth the effort, the risk is not worth the reward. Well, our community figured it out on those old school things. And they were easier to see. A piece of gold is easy to see. A crypto, you can't really see it, right? So I think we're all challenged with figuring out how to innovate, ideate and change, you know, the narrative because this is the world we live in. It's it's, it's getting more and more connected all the time. I mean, literally everything's connected, wearables, ingestibles. My refrigerator's having a a affair with the toaster because they're all, you know, smart home, smart, everything. Right. And every one of those is a vulnerability that could be exploited if you're not careful. And we have to be aware and more and more aware. You know, everything we have is something that, you know, a threat agent can look to try and exploit. So, you know, my, my, my big message to everybody is we are all part of this. Jim Bates does not have all the answers. I've got a lot of experience. You've got a lot of experience, So You've talked to a lot of people. But I think what you're doing is how we get the word out. This is how we make it visible. And, and, and God bless you for what you're doing. I mean, you know, I, I've just, everywhere I go, people have heard about you and what you're doing, and we want to make it even bigger. So anything I can do to contribute and help, this is how we start right here.
1: Oh, that's awesome, Jim. I really, I really do appreciate that. I think um, it's just about having these conversations that are open. There's no, there's no ulterior motive here. I don't sell security services. I don't have a horse in this race, but I just, I really want to go back a step. What, When you were speaking before, what was coming up on my, my mind was in people's eyes, the internet doesn't feel like real. Like, and what I mean by that is if I don't know if you went out and you punched someone in the face, you get reprimanded for that. But if you go out and you troll someone on Twitter, you don't really get reprimanded. So I think the same philosophy or theory extends in the cyber world, right? Like it doesn't feel real. So people like it goes back to, you can't see it, but you don't, you can't, there's nothing to really hang your hat on really at the end of the day. And I think that's the problem in the cyberspace. Like, Oh, well, doesn't really matter. The internet's not really real life per se. So I think that's the challenge,
0: yeah. no, I think you're exactly right. Uh, you're exactly right. It is. You know, but think about it. we used to we used to take our mail and send it through a stagecoach. you know, the Pony Express over here, you know, the famous Pony Express in the u s. then we went to a telegram, you know, over his wire, and then people would cut the wire, you know whatever. But it's still something you could see. And then, you know, we got to the telephone. We're now, okay, I pick up this phone. I really can't see the line between here and there. And so we started kind of getting this idea of, you know, I could pick up the phone and, you know, bully somebody over the phone. It's a little bit harder to see. But now we're to this thing where, I mean, it's like, literally communication has become so, I mean, I'm walking around with a so-called smartphone that I can do everything from. And, you know, I feel like that you're exactly right. It's something that because, It's hidden, you know, just uh, the pornography industry and how big that is, because it's something that people can hide and do. You're not going out there physically out there where everyone can see you walking into some shop. You're hiding in your little space behind your little deal. But now eyes are watching you. Everything's hooked up. I mean, cameras, I mean, you can't. I was just talking about some product the other day. I wasn't even online looking for it. And I started getting ads popping up. It's like they're listening on my phone or something. It's literally that scary, you know?
1: It's more anonymity these days. So like with crypto and all that stuff, like, of course there are ways to find like who owns what wallet, but it's just more so like if you go out in the street and you commit a crime, it's obvious it was you, right? But on the internet, like this this is sort of going back to my theory before, like on the internet, like, oh, well, like what's the worst that's going to, I troll you and then I get blocked. But I may be Carissa Breen, but I may not be me either. And I think that, it just doesn't feel real then because you can't physically see the person. That person may not even exist for all I know. But if you go out in the street and you punch someone, that's very obvious that that happened. And I think what's going to happen now with the whole Web3 and Meta and all this is going to become this – it's almost going to become people are going to become delusional between what's real, what's fake. Is Web3 the real world or is this physical world real? Or which one is real? Are they both real?
0: Yeah. So you just turned us into, like I said, that plight of the human race and, you know, with robotics and intelligent information and, you know, you know, virtual reality and augmented reality. It's like, you know, I've talked to a lot of these kids and they're just having a hard time of understanding even what's real. And so this is the world we live in. This is the world we transact business in. You know what I'm saying? It's literally where we're at. And this is a dialogue that's so important. And I'm glad that on your show, we have a way of your podcast. We have a way of bringing it up because, you know, we can talk about all the, the things that make us cybersecurity guys happy about, you know, Oh man, I've got this really now, you know, I've got this new service that and I'm doing a SIM service where I'm actually mining all this stuff with artificial intelligence and machine learning. And it's doing, you know, yay, yay, yay. But we're, we're we're becoming harder to communicate in a real way because now people hide behind an emoji or an avatar on their computer. I'm on a zoom thing. I can't see their face. I can't hear, you know, I can't, I like to read people. I like to read micro expressions. I'm really good at it. And now it's like I've lost a lot of my ability to communicate effectively because of that. Right. And so you're bringing up something that's even a bigger topic that we could probably spend another whole podcast on. But yeah, no, it's great though, because we need to start the dialogue about where we're headed as a civilization now. And how do we start equipping ourselves, become more aware, help the the young people that are coming up today in this world, you know, to be able to communicate better and to understand and to be a cyber citizen that's responsible, to understand what it means to have good cyber hygiene like we do with everything else, and take a world that's not tangible, you know, it's something like that, right? And just say, hey, we've got to make this in a way that you can get your arms around it and protect, you know, the you know the data and everything else that we're doing.
1: And one sort of last question to sort of close on. Now, we spoke about communication, strong communication, but as you sort of alluded to, things that people's communication is sort of breaking down because of having so much distance and people are now working remotely and people are not going to see each other as much. Do you think we're going to get to the stage where, like, I don't know, we're communicating just via WhatsApp and there's just no communication like this at all because people become so inept from it because they're so used to it. Like, are we going to feel so remote? And then if so, doesn't that then just broaden the problem and it acts like we're not closing the gap?
0: Yeah, no, it's true. I think you're onto it because I, I've, I'm a world traveler. You know, I've spent a lot of time doing Give Back and Africa and just, you know, different... Um, Communities and you know, the Philippine Islands and everywhere, and everyone uses WhatsApp. And it's like now, it's, it's like everybody's trying to blow me up on WhatsApp, they want to call me on WhatsApp, and it's like they just time zones are different everywhere. I'm a working man and I'm trying to work, and if I don't respond to somebody instantly, they get their feelings hurt like, You didn't talk to me, why didn't you respond to me? I'm like, This is, I mean, it, it's just you know, communication is. My in baskets now, you know, I've got, well, I teach at the college and I have my business account. I have my personal account. You know, I have probably four email accounts and then I have texting and WhatsApp. And it's like, I could not process all the voicemails, emails, texts, WhatsApps that I get every day. If I work 24 seven, I couldn't respond to everybody. And so, yeah, as I'm laughing because you're just opening up another whole dialogue, right? It's It's going to become more and more rapid, more instant, more points. And, and it's going to, it adds way more complexity to our entire world. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's a good one. I think, I don't know if I answered your question, but I think I added on to feel to the fire.
1: Well, I think it's just more so an observation because I mean, what you've sort of said most of the conversation is IT people generally, again, this is a general statement, you know, not the strongest communicators. So if we're there, at this stage, imagine the next five years when things are more remote and more online and we don't have to see people. Imagine how much harder it's going to be to communicate with people to then get like budget and all that stuff over line. Like I'm curious to see how it's going to sort of pan out.
0: Yeah, no, you're right. I think that's a really good point. I think that the audience needs to really kind of think about the innovators out there, the people who are trying to bring things to market that will help us Look at five years out. Where are we going to be? What's the answer? And we need to collaborate and figure that out because I feel like it's just going to get, it's going to get harder and harder to communicate. It's going to get um, more instant. There's going to be a lot more, you know, like how many times have you read an email and you misinterpreted what someone was trying to say because you're trying to, and you're trying to put, figure out what their tone is and maybe they didn't mean anything, but it was just like a, they just were trying to hurry up and communicate. So you thought they were mad, you know?
1: Oh, all the time. I think that's human nature.
0: Right, and so now I have to send five or six emails just where I could have picked up the phone and talked to someone for three minutes and then got it solved.
1: I am a phone person though, to be honest, as a millennial, which is like, me, I think it's more Gen Zers anyway that don't like speaking to human beings, but I actually like it because I think about optimizing my time.
0: Yeah, no, that's, yeah, exactly. I, I, that's the way, because I, I, I have this big lean background, you know, I've done a lot of lean process improvement, and digital transformation optimization by taking technology, business processes, and all that, and trying to find the most optimal way to deliver our business services, right? That's what I do in my company, Business Improvement Group, every day. And I feel like you're right. I'm seeing that some of the newer generations coming up, they communicate different. Um, you know, they send these emojis to show emotion when I can't tell if they're real or not. Are they really laughing out loud? Or are they crying right now? I don't know. Um, you know, and it's so it's hard. I'm, I'm somebody who's old school, uh, maybe a little bit older school than you. Um, but, you know, I, I just like the old touchy feely, you know, talk to somebody, pick up the phone, you know, to solve it, make it efficient and effective. And yet I see these new um, generations coming up that can type on a phone like pff, ridiculous hyper speeds, and somehow they're communicating. And yet they're sitting like sometimes 10 feet apart from each other. They're not talking. They're, ta- they're talking on their phone to each other and they're literally in the same room. And they've learned to communicate through this new forum. And maybe we should pick their brains a bit about what they think and how, because I'm serious, maybe they see something we don't see. I don't know.
1: Maybe, maybe, maybe it's just, you know, can I can I get more budget? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Like, who knows?
0: <laughs> like send a picture, a stack of dollars and a thumbs up or thumbs down. <laughs> oh, that's great
1: yeah like maybe that's what i'm saying like who knows maybe that's the stage we're gonna get to like yeah so i mean look i think that it's more just zooming out conceptually around communication i don't think there's a silver bullet to it i i think everyone's different i think everyone's at, at their own stage on how like their communication journey per se so i think that you know It's just giving high level strategies, sharing some of your experience and your insight and your your thoughts about what's worked for you in the past. And that's all we can really do. So I really appreciate your time, Jim. Loved your energy. I I loved your realness and your rawness. And I really do genuinely appreciate your time for sharing some of your insights today. Thanks very much.
0: Thanks, Gressa. you're the best.
1: Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital.
0: This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.